welcome to the Idolcast. Hit it! opening song today is TVXQ's cover of Lionheart, the legendary SMAP song, performed live on Bokura no Ongaku, which aired on March 20th, 2009, Legends Covering Legends. You love to hear it. Or at least, I love to hear it. So this episode is part four of the series covering the rise and fall and rebirth of TVXQ, aka DBSK, aka Toho Shinki, aka Dongbang Shinki, the gods rising from the east. If you haven't listened to the first three episodes, I'd suggest doing that first, but you know, <laughs> it's gonna be your uh, probably two hours. Um, we'll see how we'll see how long this goes. <laughs> So if you'll allow me a brief digression before we pick up our story in 2009. I'm not sure how many listening to this will be familiar with a recent American Supreme Court ruling colloquially referred to as the Alston decision. So Alston was a class action lawsuit brought against the NCAA, the National Collegiate Athletic Association, because of unfair restrictions on the compensation of student athletes. 
College athletics has become a huge business in the United States, and student athletes had not been seeing any of that money, even though it was their bodies on the playing field and their faces selling merchandise. Thanks to Alston, a unanimous decision from the court, that seems to be changing. One of the biggest issues at stake as the NCAA scrambles to make new rules is something referred to as simply NIL, Name, Image, Likeness. In another important 2014 lawsuit, Ed O'Bannon, a member of the 1995 UCLA championship basketball team, realized that UCLA had licensed his NIL for use in a video game, for which he, O'Bannon, the guy, you know, who had actually played on the championship team, received zero dollars. O'Bannon sued the NCAA and won a big settlement for himself and other affected ex-student athletes. Was it really fair that the universities can make insane amounts of money from college athletics while the players were restricted to nothing more than an academic scholarship? One that these student athletes may not even be able to take full advantage of considering the hours needed to be spent on the training field rather than in the library or, you know, in the lab doing coursework. The NCAA, for its part, has maintained that the ideal of amateurism is the big reason that they didn't want to compensate student-athletes monetarily. The argument is that it would ruin the purity of the sport for sport's sake if the players were paid. These athletes, they're not employees, they're students. The entire reason for the NCAA's existence in the first place was in response to collegiate football player deaths in the early 20th century, thanks in no small part to tramp players who would drift around between schools, playing wherever the money was best. If everybody was simply playing for the love of the game and school spirit, all of that nastiness goes away. Or in something more relevant in today's world, what would it say for a school's image if the star quarterback was getting paid to endorse some scammy NFT scheme on TikTok? After all, shouldn't the NCAA have some control over the players' NIL if those players, the students, are under the care of the universities? their responsibility to guide in loco parentis? The problem is that 100 years later, even with the fig leaf of amateurism, collegiate sports have become huge drivers of money. Alumni donations, television rights, and of course, the money from the student-athlete NILs. There are many stories of student-athletes, a not insignificant number from low-income families, going to bed hungry, having no money for food. While in the alumni suite, they're, you know, popping champagne bottles after that win. It's not a great look for the universities, whether or not one agrees in principle with the ideal of amateurism and the college tradition of acting in local parentis. There was an infamous 2017 case where a UCF football player had been running a monetized YouTube account showcasing his own career as a student athlete and sending that money home to his family in Costa Rica. He was told that he could either demonetize or stop referring to his athletic career on the channel. He refused to do either, and he lost his place on the team, his scholarship, and his future career as a football player. This has been the situation for student athletes. Either accept the monastic and hungry life of the amateur, or if you attempt to use your own image name and likeness to earn money to help your family or to you know pay for luxuries like breakfast the colleges can and will destroy your future athletic career forever 
Because if you, as a college athlete, lose access to the NCAA, the market where you can sell your skills, then you're basically fucked. It's not like you can just start your own team and challenge Georgia or Michigan to a game. The NCAA effectively has a monopoly on the market. Maybe you see where I'm going with this. It's not a direct analogy, but the NCAA provides access to the playing field where these young athletes can make their names and their careers in the same way that idol companies provide young talents access to the arenas where they can try and make their names and careers. Idols are drafted onto teams and given a playbook they're expected to follow. Teamwork is important. Following the coach, the producer, is important. But how far do you go in subsuming your own best interests to that of the company in order to be a team player? Idols are not monks devoting their lives to the god of performance at the expense of all worldly concerns. Especially in the era that this podcast series focuses on, when the goal for many of the young trainees who joined up in the late 1990s and early 2000s was to earn money for their families. The idols need money, the companies need money. So far, their goals align. But what happens when the idol acts against the interest of the company, against the interests of the team, in favor of their own interests? Is it short-sighted and selfish, or is it self-preservation? And what about when the company acts against the best interests of their idols because it's better for the company or better for the financial benefit of the shareholders, for the executives? How much money is an idol's career worth? And who does that money and that career belong to? The image of the idol, the magic contained within that group name. At the end of the day, these are a collaboration between the company, the fans, and the men and women on stage, belonging to all and to none. In this episode, we will see what happens when that magic shatters and when those bonds break. as we enter 2009 is basically this. TVXQ debuted in 2004, where work like dogs for five solid years helped spark a complete rebirth of the idea of the idol group in Korea, and now had reached the top of the brand new K-pop scene and were riding massive momentum in Japan. But cracks were beginning to show within the group. TVXQ is tied to SM Entertainment in Korea, and in Japan, where they are booming, the group is tied to the Japanese dance music label come pop music behemoth, Avex Group. They had just released their fourth Korean album, Merotic, in 2008, which had been the only album since Soteji in 2004 to break half a million copies sold in Korea. But while there, you know, there was money coming in from sales in Korea, it was not late 1990s HOT money. Concerts, commercials, brand endorsements, soundtrack songs, merchandise and NIL. That's where the real money was. 
but how much of any of this revenue actually trickled down to the members of TVXQ who were doing the on-the-ground work? Was it enough to justify everything that they'd been through for the past five years? Hospitalizations, insane 24-hour-a-day schedules, flying across the globe without rest, tormented by the stalker fans known as Sussangs. The members of TVXQ, as we enter 2009, are as follows. And please note that all of the members except Chungmin were born in 1986, which means that they were all about 22 or 23 in 2009, and Chungmin was born in 1988, which would make him 20 to 21 in 2009. In other words, keep in mind, these guys are still very young. Jung Yuno, know, you know, you know, the leader, a famously stubborn-minded and determined man, he came to Seoul against his father's wishes with nothing but a dream in his pocket, and now he was arguably in the most popular boy group in Asia. Yuno's family is part of the professional class, his father was a lawyer, and Yuno had been expected to follow in the family lineage, although the family had hit on hard times during the 1997 financial crisis. Yuno's decision to go to Seoul as a teenager speaks a lot to his strength of character and his mindset when he thinks something is the right path, because his father absolutely objected to his choice, although he had eventually come around. The entertainment industry had been known as kind of a slimy, low-class industry, but now the company Yuno worked for had earned the official recognition of the Korean government. That would not be something to be treated lightly by a man like Yuno's father. The same with the middle-class values of things like loyalty. So as 2008 comes to a close and Yuno emerges as the member willing to speak the party line on SM Entertainment, you can kind of understand where that comes from. Then there's Kim Jae-jung, Hero Jae-jung, the oldest and arguably the most popular member of the group at this time. So Jae-jung had a very determined personality and he'd also come to Seoul with nothing but a dream in his pocket. But unlike you know, Jae-jun was raised in a family of modest means in a rural area well outside of Seoul, and he was the youngest of nine children. So Jae-jun was adopted as a young child, and as TVXQ became popular, his birth mother emerged in the media, spilling uh, copious amounts of dirt. And there was even a legal battle between the adoptive and biological parents. And in the end, Jae-jung did remain loyal to his adopted family, keeping the surname Kim. But one can imagine that with all of this happening in Seoul, Jae-jung might actually prefer to be in Japan away from the media circus. And if you remember from the last episode, Jae-jung had just snagged a major role in a film. And at least to me, it seems like he really was looking to stretch his wings and trying to shine, you know, on his own. And you can understand how the youngest brother of eight sisters growing up in some rural podunk town would have that strong desire to prove himself. Kim Jun-soo, Chia Jun-soo, arguably the best singer in the group, um, and he also had a somewhat difficult upbringing. He and his twin brother, Kim Jun-ho, fraternal twins, had been sent to live with their grandmother as very young kids because of their parents' money problems. The twins didn't see their parents for months and months, which was a foundational and traumatic memory for the young Junsu. Eventually, the family was reunited, although money was still very tight. And Junsu, instead of getting to play soccer or some other fun activity after school, had been pushed into joining a child idol group called SRD, Song, Rap, and Dance. 
And you know, they were billed as the youngest idol group ever. Uh, but then Jensu ends up passing the audition for SM Entertainment in 1999 as a tween and joins up as a trainee there instead of debuting with SRD as a tween. So in other words, his mother was that kind of stage mom, the kind who puts her son into a shady child idol group. Brother Junho, who had been chosen by the parents to try and become a professional baseball player, didn't quite work out. Uh, he would also later try to get in on TVXQ's booming popularity by trying to debut as a singer in China and using his brother's name for publicity. None of this helped the money-hungry accusations that trailed his family and, well, still trail his family. Shim Chungmin, Max Chungmin, is the baby of the group. He's tall and introverted and tends to kind of fade into the background during group interviews um, in this early era, letting the others take the spotlight. He started off as something of a, you know, doe-eyed cutie patootie, but that kind of more naturally fell to Junsu, and Changmin became known to fans as the original evil Makne. And you can still find compilations of him being savage. Um, and as I mentioned in a previous episode, Changmin had been scouted while playing badminton, and he didn't have any particular interest in performance or becoming an idol. His mother made him audition because uh, she was a fan of Boa. And like you know, Changmin also comes from a professional middle-class family. His father was a Korean language teacher and apparently is something of a hard-ass. He was against Changmin joining up as a trainee and insisted that Changmin keep up his studies as the condition of remaining a trainee. And Changmin is the type of person who listened to his father and actually studied in between lessons at SM. One can imagine that like Yuno's father, Changmin's father likely did not think singing and dancing was a respectable or stable career path. And things like the recognition of SM Entertainment and TVXQ as positive diplomatic forces by the Korean government as well as, again, values like honoring your promises, likely meant a great deal. And then there's Park Yoo-chun, Mickey Yoo-chun, who was the last to join SM Entertainment. Like you know, he was also from a family deeply affected by the 1997 Asian financial crisis. His family emigrated to the U.S. in the wake of that crisis, and the young Yoo-chun would have grown up as an immigrant kid, having to learn English on the fly. Worse than the shock of being thrown into a foreign culture, his parents got divorced, and Yuchun and his brother were raised by their mom, a single mother in a foreign country struggling to raise two kids. That is not an easy life. Yuchun loved music and, by his own account, spent hours at the piano just out of loneliness. He saved up on his own to earn money to return to Korea to audition and join SM Entertainment. His stage name, Mickey, was the English name he'd given himself in America. It's not easy being an immigrant kid in a new country, especially one where you are a racial minority. And it's also not easy for Koreans returning back to Korea from abroad. Those feelings of isolation, loneliness, of just that, that lack of roots, those, those can really linger. As we pick our story back up, by the end of 2008, the cracks were definitely starting to appear in the group. These five men had been worked extremely hard with very little rest or downtime or even time apart for more than five years. Something had got to give. In 2009, 
begins very much like previous years with a string of seven Japanese singles spread across four releases and a new Japanese album, which is excellent, uh, The Secret Code, released in March. The singles all did incredibly well, but beyond any metrics, they're just great songs, like some of the best five-member TVXQ songs. Bolero. the world which was the opening theme song to the anime one piece personal favorites of mine, but really they're just all great. 2009, I think, was really OT5, TVXQ, at the height of their game. And then something else similar to previous years, Junsu had reached his physical limit and TVXQ would begin their massive tour of Japan in May 2009 with Junsu seated in a wheelchair. And then, the moment you've all been waiting for, on a fateful day, July 31st, 2009, just before A Nation was about to kick off in Japan, three of the five members of TVXQ walked to the courthouse in Seoul and filed for a provisional injunction on the exclusivity clause of their 13-year contracts with SM Entertainment. Jaejung, Yuchun, and Junsu. JYJ. This was the first step in a potentially bigger lawsuit against the company. A lawyer for the three members said that they'd tried to resolve this for two months behind closed doors, but SM had refused to back down, so JYJ had been forced to take action. Reading back through the events as they happened, the narrative changes from day to day, from month to month, and becomes quickly tangled. Facts reported in one article are dismissed in another. I combed through mountains of news articles and fan blogs in multiple languages on all sides of the dispute, as well as interviews given after the fact in order to try to put together something of a coherent narrative. Both sides, or all sides I should say, used the media and the fans to try and sway public opinion, and there were a lot of half-truths and exaggerations that make it kind of hard to get the full story, even today. There are many angles to this story that likely we will never know, and probably we should never should know. Things like the personal relationships between the members, which are really none of our business as fans. But here are a few things to keep in mind as we go through this. Ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four. 1. 
The length of the 13-year contracts became a major talking point, but it's something of a MacGuffin, I think. The contracts were agreed to by the members and their parents back in 2004 in the wake of the member rotation scare, if you remember back to, I think that's in episode two. However, I think it could be reasonably argued that teenagers just starting out their careers and parents who have no idea about show business are not really in the best position to make informed decisions, especially when that 13-year agreement was in response to a move by SM to potentially replace one or all of the members. It's also true that SM Entertainment was taken to court in 2006 and 2007 for having trainees sign contracts that were excessive in length and then had draconian penalties for breaking them. And SM lost both of those cases. Considering that JYJ maintained, at least initially, that they did not want to leave TVXQ, in my opinion, if the terms of the contract had been better and the conditions more flexible to allow things like solo activities, the length, that 13 years, would not have become an issue. At least not at this point. Two, since their debut in 2004, the five members of TVXQ had been worked until they physically could not take anymore. Junsu, Jaejung, and Yuno had all suffered leg, knee, or ankle injuries of the type that one typically sees from overuse and strain, and all of the members had had to work through various illnesses. Yuno had almost been killed by an anti-fan. Uh, depression, trauma, extreme homesickness, anxiety, exhaustion, and of course, the ever-present stalker Sasang fans. These are all things that the members have candidly discussed in recent years. And at this point in 2009, there did not appear to be an end in sight. This is an obscene level of mental stress and should be taken into account when looking at their actions. Three, there is still debate over their monetary compensation from SM and whether or not it was fair. I'm just going to throw it out there that it's possible for somebody like a professional athlete, or yes, a singer, to earn what a normal person would consider a lot of money and still be underpaid by their company relative to the amount of work performed and revenue that they are generating. For a group like TVXQ, who are essentially on the clock 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, for going on 6 years at this point, less on-the-job injuries and constant sexual harassment from the Sasang fans and, you know, who knows who else. That's a hell of a lot of workmen's comp and overtime pay. Also, like professional athletes, the money that pop artists, these, these idols, that they earn at the top of their game, that needs to last them the rest of their lives, through the years when they are not selling out Tokyo Dome and when their bodies can no longer handle the insane workload. Pop artists often turn to investing in real estate and other businesses for this reason. They need income for the years when they are not selling 10 copies of every new release to every fan. The fact that Jinsu has since come out and said he earned 100 times more after leaving SM, even being blacklisted from K-pop, than he did when he was a member of the most popular boy group in Asia, well, that should tell you something, even though... You know, the 100 times more is probably hyperbole. Additionally, one of the sticking points for JYJ, and indeed something that has been raised again with the recent complaints by EXO members Baekhyun, Schumann, and Chen, is the lack of transparency from SM Entertainment regarding their payment. If the payments were fair, as has been maintained by SM, the company should have been able to provide documentation 
to that effect. The fact that the availability of that documentation, or lack thereof, remains a sticking point with SM Idols to this day, again, should tell you something. Something else to keep in mind is that around this time in 2009, the quote, K-pop, unquote, industry was in the very early stages of decoupling from the Korean music industry generally and spinning off into its own separate thing focused almost exclusively on the export idol group market. So from 2008 to 2009, the percentage of revenue in the music industry from exports, right, that doubled. And then from 2009 to 2010, it doubled again. And by 2011, the percentage of exports of the Korean music industry was 10%, up from 1% in 2006. And the overall value of the music industry at that time had also practically doubled from 1.2 billion in 2006 to 2 billion in 2011. And I'm just gonna I'm just gonna put it out there. This is thanks in no small part to TVXQ's success and revitalizing the K-pop idol group market with their amazing success in Japan. And while this was great for SM Entertainment and for K-pop generally, the downside for the members of TVXQ is that SM Entertainment was in a much, much stronger position than it had been when Xinhua successfully negotiated their exit as a group in 2002 during the Minus Touch years. On top of SM's stronger position as an individual company, and this is something that comes into play later, the major K-pop companies formed something of a K-pop guild called KMP Holdings in March of 2010 that could, and would, allegedly, be used as a massive bargaining tool along the lines of, if you want product from any of our member companies, you have to agree to play by our rules. And then five. There's one additional piece of sad context that is necessary to understand why the reaction was so heated when JYJ took their long walk to the courthouse. On March 7th, 2009, an actress by the name of Jung Jae-yeon took her own life, and she left behind a suicide note that named and shamed a long list of entertainment industry executives that she had been forced to sleep with by her manager. And there was a massive outpouring of public anger and grief, and like in 2002, the entertainment industry was again placed under public scrutiny for corruption and other immoral behavior. So when a few months after this terrible event, three members of the nation's most popular boy group began speaking up about how unhappy they were with their contracts, it was like a match to kindling as far as public opinion went. Okay, so back to the story. Now, while in retrospect, as I said, the ingredients had likely been in place for TVXQ's implosion for some time, the final catalyst for that July 31st, 2009 courthouse stroll by Jinsu, Jaejung, and Yuchun was a Chinese cosmetics company called Creebu. That's Create Beauty. 
So on January 6, 2009, there had been a Creepu launch event in China, attended by Jung, Yu Chun, Junsu, and Junsu's brother, Junho. This was followed in the spring by the opening of three individual Creepu shops in Seoul, uh, one for each of the members participating, each of which seems to have been owned or managed by that member's family members, judging by the fan reports of meeting those family members at the stores. And Yu Chun also opened an ice cream store for his mom in May 2009. So from my reading, there seemed to have been two sticking points for SM with this venture at the time. One was the NIL name image likeness. So these individual shops were using the members NIL to promote the cosmetics, which violated SM's exclusive rights. And then two, which was the branding, and these shops and the Krebu brand generally were using the TVXQ brand to promote themselves, something which had not been agreed to by SM or, frankly, by the other two members of TVXQ. And then behind the scenes, there seems to have been an additional problem, and if you remember from at the top of the episode, two of the members came from the professional middle classes, and three of the members did not. And it may be coincidence, but the group happened to break down exactly along that line when it came to the question of TVXQ's members' families directly profiting from those members' NIL. And the biggest sin, judging by statements later released from Yuno's father, the lawyer, and Chengmin's father, the teacher, is that the families of the other three members were, well, to be frank, they found the other three members' families extremely tacky. Let me read from a statement issued by Chengmin's father in November of 2009, and this translation is taken from the excellent true tvxq.blogspot.com, which I will link to in the show notes. A lot of great stuff there. So quote, after three members started the cosmetics business and attended the company's business presentation in China, I talked to one of the parents over the phone and he said absurd things like, this business may become worth tens and hundreds of millions of dollars. After we list the company through backdoor listing using another company listed on Cosdac, we will spread the news of TVXQ's involvement in the business and when the stock starts to go up, we will give you information so you can buy the stocks. In addition, when there was a meeting between TVXQ's parents and SM CEO Kim Young Min, because of these problems related to the cosmetic business, we were explained that the cosmetics business could tarnish TVXQ's image, and TVXQ can incur enormous loss, so we need to refrain from this business. One of the parents resisted strongly and refused to request. Afterwards, when the five parents had a separate meeting, one of the parents said, We will stop working with SM. We heard another company is willing to pay a huge signing bonus. If the two parents join us, we will talk with the presidents of the company to give you company shares. Afterwards, they proceeded with the lawsuit after sending content-certified mail to SM. But then let's look at the other side. On June 25, 2009, the administrators of some JYJ fan sites met with Jinsu's father, who appears to have been the major instigator of the Kribu scheme, Yuchun's mother, and one of Jung's eight sisters. This has since become known as the 625 meeting. And leaked audio gives us a good idea of how the JYJ side was framing things. 
relying again on the fantastic work of truetvxq.blogspot.com, who has transcribed and translated the audio, a few things come across. At some point in the recent past, it's claimed that all five members had been on the same page about leaving SM, or at least had all been on the same page about their unhappiness with the company. Two, JYJ's families were convinced that SM had tried to create conflict in the group in order to control the group better. Three, JYJ's families did not think that the members were receiving all of the money that they were earning. And four, JYJ's families absolutely did not see the problem with trying to earn money from an allegedly shady business like Creepu. Because, you know, money was money, right? Knowing what SM Entertainment did with HOT and Xinhua, among others, deliberately not offering all the members of the group contract renewals, well, we've never gotten concrete proof of it, I don't think it's crazy that SM would have tried the same divide-and-conquer tactic with TVXQ in order to better control them, especially if they'd caught wind of the five members potentially uniting against the company. It is not an unreasonable claim. And when you consider that Chungmin and Yuno alone were offered drama roles in the middle of all this, may have been a coincidence, but the timing did not look good. So Creepu was the final catalyst, but like the 13-year contracts, I think it is also something of a MacGuffin. What becomes lost in the middle of this fight between the parents over Creepu and how tacky <laughs> certain people's families are, uh, what gets lost are the five members themselves and their own motivations for action or lack of action, as well as the underlying complaints about their treatment by SM Entertainment, not to mention how and why SM Entertainment had allowed the situation to reach this point to begin with. So initially, in the media and among fans, the issue of compensation was the dominant topic. So JYJ filed a request for SM to provide them with their earning statements, and SM claimed that they could not do that because it was a company secret. And SM tried to rebut the charges of underpayment with a statement saying that the members had received 11 billion won to date. So at the 2009 exchange rate, that's about $8 million. So let's say that's $1.3 million per year as a group, which works out to about $260,000 per member per year. And don't get me wrong, that is a lot of money. But even if we give SM the benefit of the doubt and say, okay, this is the payment after taxes and expenses, is it really fair compensation for the revenue TVXQ was generating? Oricon Magazine was reporting that TVXQ had earned about $24 million US in 2009 money just from album sales in Japan, just in the first half of 2009 alone. So this could have been totally legitimate SM Entertainment. They were rolling money up to debut, you know, new groups, whatever. There could have been legitimate reasons for this, but you can see why some of the members' families in the absence of accounting statements, right? You can see why they may be thinking that the math did not seem to be mathing. So other reports came out alleging that TVXQ had been forced to pay for things like backing dancers, 
food and executive pay from their earnings. And that was after, of course, the money had been skimmed by numerous subsidiary companies. Remember, Isuman's like planning was still getting a healthy cut of gross revenue off of the very top. So you can say that the families of JYJ were just being greedy, sure. But circling back to their student athletes, is there a good reason that the executives in the C-suite should be getting a fat cut of revenue, but the men giving their blood, sweat, and tears on the playing field should be satisfied with the crumbs. SM Entertainment on their side, as the rhetoric heated up, seemed to lean into playing the heel or the bad cop, and they doubled down on punishing TVXQ and their fans by stopping all scheduled work, even canceling the big SM Town concert that was supposed to have been held on August 16th, sparking massive fan outrage. And fans suspected this was done to turn public sentiment against JYJ, but all it did was make fans angrier at SM. TVXQ fans, Cassiopeia for their part, submitted a petition signed by something like 120,000 fans against SM Entertainment. The battle between the two sides played out in the court in Korea and in the media through September into October, with Creepy's parent company even suing SM and CEO Kim Young-min claiming defamation. And this lawsuit would eventually be dismissed, but then SM and Kim Young-min would countersue Creepy for defamation. Meanwhile, over in Japan, Avex, who was suffering a bit of a downturn, was making sure that Toho Shinki, one of their most profitable acts, remained active, with the group taking the stage for A-Nation in what have to be some of the most uncomfortable performances that have ever happened on planet Earth. On September 30th, 2009, Jaejung and Yuchun also released a subunit song in Japan called Colors as a tie-in for Hello Kitty's 35th anniversary. It went to number one on Oricon.
on October 27, 2009, the court issued its ruling. The exclusivity clause was put on hold with a temporary injunction, and the issue of compensation was to be dealt with at a later date. For now, at least, SM could no longer schedule JYJ to do any work that they did not want to do, nor could SM stop JYJ from doing work that they wanted to do. They were still under contract to SM, but the temporary injunction had given them some measure of free agency. But SM doubled down on the Bad Cop Act. The narrative that the company put forward was that JYJ's concern over profit allocation and contract length was a smokescreen to cover up for their greedy and oh-so-tacky families. SM had invested a lot of money in TVXQ, and while it seemed like there was a lot of money coming in, they maintained that there were a lot of expenses that needed to be paid. And, you know, they weren't, that's not, you know, an insane uh, narrative to put forward. Um, I'm sure there were a lot of expenses, but again, they just, where was the paper trail? No paper trail was ever put forward. So JYJ maintained they were not interested in leaving TVXQ and were willing to work. But SM could not allow JYJ to set the precedent of idle free agency. So either JYJ had to return to the fold under their original contracts, or essentially SM was saying TVXQ is over. And it was a dangerous gamble. You know, even with SM having this much deeper roster than they'd had in 2002 when they led Xinhua walk. A few days after the ruling on November 2nd, 2009, SM gave a press conference where they issued a threat. You know and Chungmin would be preparing for a TVXQ comeback in 2010. And the other three members had until November 12th to decide if they wanted to join them. And this was also when the uh, statements from the fathers came out and you know, and Chungmin also issued statements in support of SM. But JYJ let that November 12th deadline pass, claiming SM had yet to comply with the court's order to provide documentation of their income. So SM then cancels the November Marotic concerts in China, calling them uncooperative and saying that there will no longer be a 2010 comeback for TVXQ or any activities at all in Korea. And JYJ maintain they're willing to work with SM, but they need some guarantee of good faith. So in the middle of all of this, Jae Jung's movie, Heaven's Postman, it, it releases to great fan response. And that could only have solidified JYJ's belief that they could be doing more on their own. Meanwhile, SM, still leaning in to playing the heavy, had announced that all of their artists were boycotting the 2009 Mnet Asia Music Awards to be held November 21st, 2009. So the reason SM gave for this was that they did not trust the voting. So, okay, side note. While all of this drama had been going down with TVXQ, girls group Girls' Generation, who had debuted in 2007 only to struggle to pick up momentum, well, they were finally breaking through with super duper hit song, G. G, 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 G. <laughs>
SM was now complaining that she had not won any trophies on Mnet's M Countdown. So the voting must have been corrupt in some way. And that's why they were boycotting. And definitely not because Mnet parent company CJENM's failed alleged hostile takeover of SM Entertainment in 2008. It was definitely about ethics and voting for music show trophies. But the SM boycott of the award show gives JYJ the chance to showcase their temporary injunction on the exclusivity clause, and they show up alone to collect the Best Asia Star Award on behalf of TVXQ. And the response by the crowd is deafening, and Jaejung in particular looks and sounds emotionally overwhelmed. And in his speech, he sends a message to Yuno and Chungmin, telling them that he loves them. It is extremely touching, and I, for one, believe it was 100% genuine. But this incident enrages SM, who, in what will become something of a meme, claim that uh, hostile forces were using JYJ as pawns to get back at them. Because it's not about fair compensation, but, you know, ethics and voting for music show trophies. Meanwhile, across the sea in Japan, AVEX had expressed support for five-member Toho Shinki and reassured fans that there was no talk of disbandment and had even made preparations for a large fan meet to be held in January 2010. And then, on the day of the big verdict, October 29th, AVEX announces that TVXQ, Dohoshinki, as five members, would be attending all of the end-of-the-year music shows in Japan, and they were going to be putting out a new single called breakout. And you know, the optics of this were confusing to fans, to say the least, and contributed even more to the bad cop image of SM Entertainment. Why were SM canceling all of TVXQ's work around Asia when Toho Shinki were still performing as a five-member group in Japan? It did not make sense to fans who were still holding out for some kind of positive resolution to this conflict. In retrospect, it doesn't particularly look like SM's goal in any of this was to keep the group together, but rather to send a message to any other idols who had been thinking of suing for freedom from their contracts. So about a week after JYJ accept the award on behalf of TVXQ at the Mnet Asia Music Awards, all five members take the stage in Japan on November 26th 
and they sing Stand By You, and it's so, so awkward. Actually, all of their performances in this last run of 2009 shows are just awkward and quite painful to watch. And reports from the fans that had staked out the airport said that the group traveled separately. Yuno and Chungmin together, JYJ together. It was not a good sign. December 11th, AVEX announces that the January 2010 fan meeting is cancelled. But AVEX continues to maintain that TVXQ is not disbanding. The single release is going ahead as planned, but ominously, if you know anything about this kind of thing, a best of album is announced. And fans, uh, they were not reassured by that. Because the best of album generally means either disbandment or hiatus. If it's not coming in like an anniversary year, like 20. So Japanese tabloids reported that SM Entertainment staff was watching Chungmin and Yuno like hawks, preventing communication between the two sides, which is extremely dystopian if true, and enough reports have leaked out that make me think it likely was true, and it does feed into those fears expressed by the JYJ side earlier, that SM had been deliberately trying to create conflict. Um, you know, they'd done it before. Kohaku Utagasen, the prestigious New Year's Eve show, December 31st, 2009, would be their final live performance as a five-member group. Thank you. 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 Thank you.
suck. Adding to the dramatics and boosting the claims of JYJ's side was that Hung Kyung of Super Junior also filed to terminate his exclusive contract with SM Entertainment on December 21, 2009, echoing most of JYJ's claims by alleging that his contract was unfair and he was being overworked. And spoiler alert, a year later, the court would rule in his favor. In December, JYJ would also establish their own management agency in Japan, CJS Studios. Despite, or perhaps because of, the breakup rumors, the group's 29th Japanese single, Breakout, released January 26, 2010, went right to number one on the Oricon charts, becoming their best-selling single to date. <laughs> album also went on to become one of the best-selling albums of the year in Japan. And I'm guessing what this proved, to AVEX anyway, was that Toho Shinki was still a very valuable brand. But despite this, six or seven months after the first court filings back in July, SM Entertainment appeared to be doing their best to break the group up by issuing public ultimatums and canceling group work. So as the fate of TVXQ as a group hung in limbo in early 2010, SM Entertainment decides to double down on making TVXQ the second coming of HOT by aggressively pushing You Know You Know into the spotlight, very likely floating the idea of launching him as a solo act a la HOT's Kangta. The difference is that unlike Kangta, who one could argue was the most popular member of HOT, well as its most prominent face and voice, um, well, they were working with the member who consistently trailed at the bottom of popularity rankings and who tended to be responsible for the rap parts of songs. Nevertheless, he is a very handsome man. And yeah, they got him magazine features, an ad campaign for Ivy Suit Jeans, and you know, is a great dancer. And so, and he even joined a tribute concert for Michael Jackson training for the performance in the United States. And you had better believe that SM made sure that every move of You Know You Knows was covered by a PR blitz. Changmin, for his part, as far as I can tell, mostly kept his head down and out of the press, off on location, filming a drama. But JYJ were also picking up solo work, even without SM's backing. Jinsu performed the lead role in the musical Mozart, through the winter into spring, although he was unable to participate in the soundtrack album because of the ongoing legal battle. And Junsu also had a solo single announced in Japan for May. Jung accepted a role in a Japanese drama, Sunaoni Narinakute, written by popular scriptwriter Kitagawa Eriko, who had written his film Heaven's Postman. And he was even highlighted along with Big Bang's top 
as one of the rising idol actors of the current generation. Yu Chun, he was also um, announced to have two drama roles, one in Japan and one in a very prominent Korean drama. So through the early part of 2010, while the final few releases trickled out in Japan, things appeared to be in something of a holding pattern, with AVEX trying to keep the very valuable Toho Shinki brand viable in Japan, while SM was playing hardball in Korea and trying to make You Know You Know a thing. All of which served to anger, alienate, and confuse the group's fanbase, most of whom were still holding out for some kind of reconciliation that would allow their beloved TVXQ to continue as five members. And then on February 18th, Representative Jo Moon Hwan drops a bombshell report on the Korean FTC. At the end of 2009, the FTC had apparently requested action from 407 entertainment agencies to fix unfair contracts and get rid of clauses that, for example, demanded talent appear for free at company events, that talent must always notify the company of their location, that all of the talent's activities belong to the company, that the talent could not suspend activities without the company's permission, so the term slave contract may be used flippantly by some fans today as dark side of K-pop scaremongering. But you have to admit that the idea that you can't quit your job or even turn down a performance request without severe financial punishment is pretty dystopian. Of the 407 agencies, only 11 had responded with changes to their contracts. This is not gonna surprise you, but none of those 11 was SM Entertainment. Representative Cho, by bringing the charges into the public sphere, turned up the pressure on the FTC to step up its enforcement. And a week later, Isuman announced that he was stepping down from his director's duties, staying on only as the major shareholder of SM. And AVEX announced that they were selling their shares in SM Entertainment. The partnership of 10 years, that had raised two Korean superstars in Japan was over, for now. And Toho Shinki's contract as a group with AVEX would, that, well, that would be over soon too. And renewal for TVXQ as a group was looking less and less like an option. Although it was looking more and more likely that JYJ would remain with AVEX. And then in April 2010, AVEX announces that TVXQ were officially going on hiatus in Japan, and the fan club was no longer going to be accepting new enrollments. Not a good sign. And then while TVXQ, Toho Shinki, the group was on hiatus, AVEX appeared to have thrown their lot in with JYJ with AVEX founder Max Matsuura even posting pictures of himself with Jaejung on Twitter. And then Max turned to Twitter to spill the tea in a series of tweets that had been deleted because Max deleted his Twitter account after getting harassed by JYJ fans in 2011 for reasons you'll hear about later. You know, live by the post, die by the post, my friends. So full credit to Mandaso at tohosomnia.net at tohosomnia.net for these translations because the originals were deleted. So 3.30 a.m. April 4th, 2010. 
Whether they do solo activities or activities as a unit, I wish that AVEX can be their management in Japan. I wonder if the Korean side will permit it. Dot dot dot. Things that will be better if you know. Things that won't hurt you if you don't know. One day, I wish to let you know. Dot dot dot. 3.35 a.m. on the same day. There's also the wonderful creator Isuman. So surely someday. Dot dot dot. <clears throat> he went on and on. Uh, I can link those as well. So nine months from the initial request for a temporary injunction on the exclusivity clause. And as far as AVEX was concerned, the underlying problem preventing Toho Shinki from working was SM Entertainment being petty bitches. While SM Entertainment was blaming JYJ and their tacky parents, for being too greedy and getting into bed with Kribu. JYJ maintained that their contracts were unfair and Changmin and Yuno's only public statements had been in support of SM. And their fathers doubled down on calling JYJ's families money hungry and gauche. And the fans, they did not know what to believe. The Japanese media reported that the projected losses for AVEX, the TV excuse hiatus, and assumed disbandment in 2010 was 5 billion yen, or about $45 million US in 2010. And again, you really do have to wonder why SM did not feel that same financial incentive as AVEX to keep TVXQ together, even if it would have meant some concessions on their end. Except that perhaps SM did not want the group becoming a second power center in the company, growing their own brand bigger than the SM brand. And it's not an unfounded fear because it's exactly what happened in Japan to Johnny's and Associates and their biggest boy group, SMAP, which Maybe that'll be another episode one day. So with SM in 2009-2010, they'd curated a very strong roster, right? Including Shiny, Super Junior, Boa, FX, and now they had Girls Generation who were becoming like legit superstars. And, you know, it was a strong enough roster that I think SM must have made the calculations that it, it was worth more to them to maintain kind of this iron fist of control and gamble on just throwing the TVXQ brand away and trying to launch Chungmin and Yuno as solo acts like Kangta. Um, but while SM maintained their firm stance on return to the same contractor parish, JYJ were making moves in the direction of continuing on as a three-member group, essentially continuing to do what they'd been doing as part of TVXQ in all but name, and with more control over their material and their schedules. In early April, they announced their participation as a trio in a major commercial and image song campaign for Lotte Duty Free. And they would participate along with big celebrities like Rain and the second most popular boy group in Korea, Big Bang. So I'm loving you so I'm loving you, 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 I'
そして笑ってここでロッテトゥリーフリー夢を一緒に作りたいよ僕のすべてだからララララララララララキ
SM at this point also sues JYJ for 2.2 billion won in lost revenue. So the hearings for SM's appeal of the JYJ temporary injunction begin in May 2010. And amazingly, even after everything that happened, so many fans, oh my god, that's it's actually really touching. They still held out for a reconciliation of the five-member group. And Cassiopeia showed up in force to the 2010 Dream Concert, which is a um, concert for a variety of um, K-pop acts kind of showcasing the K-pop industry, held on May 22, 2010, where TVXQ were not attending, but they all show up cheering for TVXQ and just representing that pearl red and you can watch the videos of this on youtube it's incredible and i will link i will link those reconciliation just it just seemed more and more out of reach so JYJ's Thanksgiving concerts were a resounding success but you know it had to have been bittersweet for the members the three of them standing on a stage that should have held five and fans were heartbroken I was heartbroken you know over a decade later seeing Jae Jung leave the stage after that final encore and he's clearly trying to hold back tears I mean, it's, it's, it's sad. Meanwhile, Chungmin was still mostly silent, and all you know had going for him was the announcement of a stage musical based on the popular drama, Gung, Princess Hours. Stream it, it's delightful. Uh, I haven't seen the musical, I'm sure it's good too. Uh, <laughs> and then you know is reported to have said, quote, I heard that Jinsu embodied his character very well. I want to do well too. I'm sure he did. You know is he is a very good dancer so okay a couple of weeks later on june 28 2010 jyj finally filed their lawsuit to be released from their 13-year contracts at sm without the massive penalty and on top of that demanding adequate compensation one billion won each for their years with sm as well as all of their legal expenses paid their position and I don't think it's unreasonable, is that they had been told 13 years was necessary for overseas expansion, but now they thought they had been lied to. Then on July 6, 2010, the Korean entertainment industry hit back at the three members big time. So SM Entertainment held a joint press conference called the proclamation ceremony for the establishment of a developing contract relationship in the entertainment industry. And they held this press conference with Representative Cho, if you remember him from uh, a few minutes ago, uh, the one who had gone public with the FTC's lack of enforcement of entertainment company contract fairness. 
So CEO Kim Young-min was in attendance, as well as the currently booming Girls' Generation, and for some reason, HOT's Kongta, who took the opportunity to scold JYJ, saying, quote, because the mentality of a celebrity who has broken a promise once will probably do it again exists, I hope that people reflect deeply on the consequences before they sign a contract, and when they do sign a contract, they must keep that promise, unquote. Translation by glim5 at tohosomnia.net at tohosomnia.net. Ouch, shots fired. Uh, not only did the appearance of Girls' Generation signal that SM had a new top act and that TVXQ were replaceable, but the joint appearance with Representative Joe, I think, signaled that the government and the industry had clearly come to some sort of understanding. Sure, some concessions would have to be made on the contracts and would be made on the contracts, but there had to be consequences for top artists going rogue against the big K-pop companies, companies that were quickly becoming the public face of Korea, thanks to the aggressive exporting with government backing of Hallyu. But again, JYJ were on fire career-wise. Jung's Japanese drama had been extremely popular. In fact, I remember watching it when it aired, which I'd totally forgotten all about it, but then I saw the cast and I was like, oh yeah, I totally watched this. It's good. I don't know if it's on streaming, but it's good. Uh, Yoo Chun's drama, his Korean drama, uh, Sung Kyung Kwan Scandal, which is a it's a classic of the era. It is like such a 2010 drama with, you know, the girl cross-dressing as a boy and there's, yeah, hijinks. Uh, it is still available today on Vicky and I recommend streaming it. So that had been chosen to be spotlighted by the Korean Creative Content Agency and the Culture and Tourism Department. And the trio had not only had the successful Dome Tour in Japan, and were not only part of the big Latte Duty Free ad campaign, but had also been recording a new album in the United States. Oh, with some big names attached. Big names like Kanye West. Uh huh. <laughs> and I just want to emphasize again at this point that Jaejung, Jinso, and Yuchun, look, they were popular. They were popular, they were in demand, and people liked them, they had fans. I mean, gosh, I don't want to, yeah, they were popular and they're in demand. Nothing that happens afterwards is because for some reason they just suddenly lose all their fans. No, they were popular, they were popular, they were in demand, they were working, right? As summer 2010 ended, JYJ had a very successful appearance again at A Nation in Japan. Hey everybody, get ready tonight. Alright, come to Kai, baby. Can't you feel it? Match it to the paper. You and me, I'm good. We are gonna sing music, so don't let me sexy. That last week, you had your mother, take a gig. Baby, let's stand up. I said we could do what she does. I even think she's dreaming. 
while. SM had Yuno and Chengmin appear as kind of a duo as part of the big SM Town Live concert series, which would have been their first time on stage together since the December 31st, 2009 performance at Kohaku Jigasen. Importantly, I just want to put a pin in this, even at this point in 2010, right, the two were still billed as Chengmin and Yuno from TVXQ, not as TVXQ. That very valuable brand was still being kept on ice. As I was looking back through the news coverage, the PR coverage, fan response, um, at this point in 2010, JYJ absolutely had the upper hand in both claiming TVXQ's legacy and in the big PR battle against SM. Not even a leaked story of an altercation between a fan and Yu Chun's manager could stop their momentum. But SM Entertainment, for their part, while still fighting JYJ in the courts, appeared to be trying their best to memory hole TVXQ, and were devoting their energies to pushing Girls' Generation, who were now doing quite well in Japan, and even floating the idea of debuting them in America. And I think it's important to note that unlike the slow climb of both BOA and Tohoshinki in Japan, Girls' Generation were able to debut in Japan into a pre-existing market for K-pop, thanks in no small part to TVXQ. So TVXQ's popularity in Japan had opened doors, or paved the way, if you will, for other groups, boy groups and girl groups, to debut there and make an impact. So there was this um, Tohoshinki fan survey done by HMV in 2010, and 75% of TVXQ fans said they listened to other K-pop artists. 75%. So TVXQ at the time had created enough of a market that YG Entertainment sent the then number two K-pop boy group Big Bang to Japan in the summer of 2009, followed by um, Mnet sending their group Supernova in October 2009. And then in 2010, you would just see this flood of K-pop groups debuting in Japan. FT Island, Girls' Generation, Kara, 2PM. And this trend would continue feeding a strong market for K-pop in Japan, I mean really to this day. And following in TVXQ's footsteps, Japanese fan club, discographies, anniversaries, and so on, um, they're generally kept completely separate from their Korean 
in the global management. But CEO Kim Young-min was adamant that Girls' Generation was not going to focus exclusively on Japan like TVXQ had, saying, translation again from uh, glim5 at tohosomnia.net and tohosomnia.net. Quote, Girls' Generation's primary goal is to become number one in Asia, so it is essential that we construct a system for them where their popularity and talents are verified in other Asian countries so they naturally become popular in Japan. A group like TVXQ that had too much popularity in Japan, that had a base of support in AVEX in Tokyo, that was a group that could and would escape from under the SM umbrella, from the SM branding, from SM control. And I think it's very telling that you don't see another group like TVXQ that has that strong domestic mainstream presence in Japan, well, ever again. Although groups like Shiny, Girls' Generation, Big Bang, Kara, 2PM, they absolutely build up strong Japanese fandoms. Absolutely. And they're well-known and well-liked, right? But they're known as K-pop acts first. And TVXQ really wasn't. They'd become part of mainstream Japanese entertainment, something that JYJ then used to build on to great success, at least in Japan, at least so far. But just because SM had seemingly shelved TVXQ indefinitely did not mean they were going to let JYJ have free reign. Remember those lawsuits? SM's appeal of the temporary injunction and demand for damages, as well as JYJ's lawsuit against SM to break the contracts and demand for damages and legal fees were still active. The producers of Yutun's drama, uh, the Korean drama, found out the hard way that hiring a soon-to-be ex-SM talent came with consequences. In September 2010, the production company of his drama filed a report with the Korean FTC because, for some reason, the song Found You from the soundtrack, a song performed by JYJ, well, this song was getting cock-blocked on Korean streaming service. The blacklisting of JYJ has been written off as fake news in some corners today. But even if nothing official was put in writing, if you remember way back at the top of the episode, I mentioned that in March 2010, the big K-pop companies had formed a guild to protect their interests. Well, that guild had sprung into action, and apparently, allegedly, it was in their interest to threaten to pull all of their songs from the streaming services if they allowed JYJ's songs to be played. Allegedly. And then worse news for JYJ was that AVEX put a halt to their activities in Japan as they looked into, well, as they looked into the validity of their contract with JYJ, as well as the rumors that the member's new management company had ties to organized crime. Uh-huh. JYJ, for their part, maintained that neither they nor their company had any ties to organized crime and said that AVEX was trying to play hardball and cut their management company out of future deals. Well, AVEX motives would soon become clear. But for right now, the end result for JYJ was that the trio was left without any major corporate support. Not in Japan, not in Korea. Their one remaining tie was to Warner Music Asia, who would be distributing their upcoming album in Korea, and who were also able to open a few doors in the United States. And if it seems odd, 
that Avex, who were suffering through a fallow period, were cutting off a best-selling boy group, then remember that by cutting ties with JYJ, Avex was now free and clear to work with SM Entertainment again. The ever-loquacious Max Matsurita took to Twitter on September 21st, 2010, saying, again, translation via Mandiso at tohosomnia.net because he deleted his Twitter account in 2011. <clears throat> Quote, The termination of the trio's contracts does no good for the profit of sales and is a big blow to AVEX. However, as a socially responsible company listed on the stock exchange, this was the only choice we could make. And then another tweet. Everyone, anyone, you've had the experience where you date someone and they turned out to be the worst, right? At that time, when you find out, if you said that it is wrong to swiftly change courses, then in the inevitable future, it might become something worse. However, making the decision is difficult. For this matter, I'm just talking about a general opinion, and it has nothing to do with Toho Shinki. <laughs> oh, what a loss that Twitter account was. A loss to Twitter. Um, so yeah, so just over a year after the initial lawsuit, and despite how high the three members had flown, the industry tide was finally turning against JYJ. Despite their popularity, despite the sales, despite the fans, despite their own determination to succeed, despite their very real talent, you know, whether or not the charges that AVEX alleged about the ties of their company president to organized crime, whether or not they were true. So, you know, fans tried their best to support JYJ, showing up in force for Yuton's drama, for the OST. Um, but SM continued to draw blood, filing for a temporary injunction against the sale of their album, saying that the original lawsuit over the exclusive contract had not yet been settled. Although Warner Music said they were going ahead with sales anyway, since the original temporary injunction still held and the trio could pursue independent activities. The Korean Federation of Pop Culture and Arts Industry officially sided with SM, saying JYJ should no longer appear on television and that their music should not be distributed. Again, fans today in some corners say the, the blacklisting was fake news, but fans still tried their best, buying albums, leaving comments, even donating record-breaking amounts of rice in JYJ's names, but the unofficial official blacklisting held firm. And then came what would be the killing blow. You know and Chungmin were rumored to be preparing for a comeback in Korea as a duo, as TVXQ. So in August 2010, Jae Jung had been strongly rumored to be cast in a prestigious new drama called Poseidon. Well, in November 2010, You Know was confirmed for it. SM Entertainment were playing their final card, their biggest card, the winning card. They owned the brand name and the legacy of TVXQ, and they were they were going to claim it. And in the end, there could be only one. JYJ would continue to fight, but time was quickly running out. The trio opened social media accounts as a way to reach the fans directly, since you know it would work so well for Max. 
Um, and there was an ill-timed promotional push in the United States, including a scheduled concert tour and showcase for Billboard. seemed to be cursed it was all just it was all it was just the timing was bad it was just too late they and their fans were up against the entire k-pop industry literally they'd formed a guild the very k-pop industry that jyj had helped br- or, you know bring into existence as part of tvxq that industry was now working to snuff them out ominously sm entertainment withdrew their request for the injunction on sales because, and fans are going to hate to hear this, but even in 2010, it turns out album sales alone do not matter. Not if you're cut off from the rest of the entertainment industry. More important than sales was that unofficial blacklisting. And indeed, on November 23rd, 2010, the announcement dropped. You know and Chungmin were officially coming back as a duo as TVXQ under SM Entertainment and they had a new comeback. And then, wait for it, because this is great. The next day, November 24th, AVEX somehow overcame their hesitation about being an ethical company and renewed their deal with the burdened with many legal problems and financial shenanigans SM Entertainment TVXQ would be returning to AVEX well how about that for a coincidence so 2010 ends with a flurry of activity for JYJ but again despite their popularity despite the devoted fan base willing to put in the work for things like flooding the Inkigaya website with complaints JYJ they just keep running up against this blacklisting. And then on December 23rd, 2010, the FTC orders SM Entertainment to change their contract length to a maximum of seven years. And the penalty for breaking it would go from three times the amount of investment and twice the predicted sales to the much more reasonable average monthly sales from the previous two years multiplied by the number of months left in the contract. A small victory for the idols of SM Entertainment. And a small final victory for JYJ as they break the blacklist to appear on KBS's Drama Awards. Hey!
TVXQ re-debuts as a duo with Keep Your Head Down, an aggressive, dance-oriented track. Two veterans, seven years into their careers, standing tall, and folks, it is good. It is very good. After chaos, we stuck it out through the hard time. We still standing here. We are Tobak Shinji. This is the new TVXQ emerging like a phoenix from a flame reborn. The kings of emotional ballads have have become the kings of SMP, and the sound is now firmly in line with what the rest of SM Entertainment is doing. This kind of Eurobeat-centric, it's it's the SM sound of the era. You hear it, you know it. Um, and the concept for this new comeback is survival, having weathered a storm, still standing as TVXQ. Writing of the narrative, and it's one that pays off big time. 
And to bolster this new narrative, SM launches a full court press of negative publicity against JYJ, bringing out all of their talent to shit on the XTVXQ members. The fight for fair contracts turns into a personal betrayal of your favorite SM idols, with Kim Young-min standing in as kind of a corporate Dominic Toretto. We were family. Money will come and go. We know that. The most important thing in life will always be the people in this room. Right here. Right now. Salute me, familia. Salute. Salute. I think what it comes down to, really, what JYJ were trying to do by going independent, what well, was dangerous. If it had been 2001 or even 2006, things might have been different. But there was simply too much money at stake now. Too much money rolled up into SM Entertainment and too much money in K-pop. The Korea Entertainment Producers Association joined in on the pylon, saying that if JYJ were able to successfully escape their contracts, it would lead to other celebrities breaking their contracts and going rogue. And that, it just, it could not happen. But the lawsuits rolled on. On February 17th, 2011, the court dismisses SM's appeal of the original temporary injunction. But again, it was too late for JYJ as the K-pop industry continued to consolidate behind SM and behind KMP Holdings, with SM and Mnet finally burying the hatchet a couple days later on February 21st, meaning that SM artists would return to shows like M Countdown, and closing off one more venue that JYJ might, in theory, have appeared on. But even in Japan, where they had previously had something of a stronghold, AVEX, who still had an exclusive contract with JYJ, was now actively working against the trio, deliberately excluding their releases from the Oricon chart rankings and preventing them from holding concerts. Does an album released and, and sell, if it doesn't make the charts, did it really release and sell, you know? JYJ were slowly but surely being erased from the media ecosystem and being cut off from mainstream distribution channels and mainstream entertainment industry infrastructure in both Korea and Japan. And so this is why I wanted to emphasize earlier, this has nothing to do with whether or not the trio had fans and, and the fan support. Nothing. This has nothing to do with that. This was, this was something else. Meanwhile, the new TVXQ, the dance-focused duo, was getting swept along into the new Hallyu wave as the embodiment of the SM sound and the SM production style. And this was, you know, early 2011 um, was around the time when there was this, this wave of Western outreach, like the legendary summer 2011 Paris SM Town concert. Right? And this is the reason why most Western fans today, if they know TVXQ at all, they know them as a duo. And I want to emphasize here that the stages, um, TVXQ stages during this run of SM Towns, they're deservedly remembered as great, legendary. Sungmin and Yuno stepping out from behind the shadow of the other three members to take center stage. Flying, pyrotechnics, 
and so, so much sexy, sweaty dancing. I really don't want anyone to walk away from this episode thinking that I'm not a fan of two-member TVXQ, because I very much am. I, I like them a lot. They have some real bangers. as the slow drip 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 of scandal is leaked into the media. Um, Yu Chun is alleged to be the victim of blackmail by an ex-girlfriend who is threatening to release nude photos and video. Jensu's father's money-hungry ways reached the press via rumors of a Jeju Island hotel, which, spoiler alert, is somehow still in the news. And um, worst of all, audio recordings of Yu Chun, Jensu, and Jejung cursing at and assaulting stalker saucing fans are leaked to the tabloids. So JYJ gave an emergency press conference from Chile where they were performing as part of their 2012 world tour when this leaked. Um, they apologized for their behavior, but as Jinsu explained, um, and this translation is from princejj.com, quote, they use our identification to expose our private phone calls and also placed GPS trackers on our cars to monitor our every move. There were instances of breaking and entering where fans would take pictures of us while sleeping, try to kiss us, steal our private items. Some fans even hired taxis to collide into our cars to see us in person. Our lives began to fall apart as we would be groped, touched, and defiled every moment of the day. We as humans should at least be able to ask for a bare minimum standard of living, but instead, we are forced to live in indescribable pain." Unquote. So in full disclosure, video would also leak a few years later of Changmin forcibly dragging a Sasang fan out of a taxi that had been chasing him and shoving her to the ground. Um, and I want to emphasize that because the Sasangs were not a JYJ problem, they were an OT5 TVXQ problem. But for some reason, only JYJ's audio had been leaked. And again, this pretty crazy coincidence, if it was a coincidence. So fans may have been disappointed to see this nasty side of their idols, but JYJ kept working. And despite the blacklist on both sides of the EC slash Sea of Japan, despite the character attacks, despite everything, uh, and then in November 2012, Three years and four months after the first lawsuit was filed, the legal battle between SM and JYJ finally comes to a close, with both parties dropping the lawsuits against each other. And the official termination date of their contract was agreed to be July 31st, 2009, the date of the first filing. So SM's statement on this, and this translation is from dongbangdata.net. The trio stated that they have no intention of performing as members of the group TVXQ, so SM has come to 
has come to the decision that we no longer have a reason to be in charge of management for the trio. We have come to a mutual agreement to not interfere with the other party's activities as our paths will not cross in the future. And the lawsuit has come to an end through this agreement. Also, we have come to the decision that the best course of action was to end the lawsuit to ensure there will be no more additional damages or unnecessary issues that arise because of the lawsuit that may harm you know you know and Choi Kang Chungmin, who are currently active as TVXQ. Unquote. And the statement from JYJ's side, again translation by Dongbangdata.net. We believed that this was a battle that had already been won three years ago when the courts accepted our injunction. To be honest, we don't believe that there will be much change to JYJ's activities after the verdict because of the interference of JYJ's activities is an illegal issue, but a battle between David and Goliath. Um, and then JYJ would go on to win a lawsuit against AVEX a couple months later in early 2013. Yeah, it's all about ethics and uh, <laughs> ethics and contract law. <laughs> so yeah, SM had not been able to stomp out JYJ despite everything, but in the end, it didn't matter. Even though to a large extent, JYJ held on to the OT5 TV excuse sound and that family narrative dynamic, SM maintained control of the TVXQ brand name and its legacy. And they had the, the infrastructure. They had the K-pop infrastructure. Um, JYJ just didn't. Um, and they would hang on as a unit for a few more years, but military service and then just entropy would eventually win out in the end. So Junsu would make a great career in stage musicals. Uh, Jae Jung would build a very solid solo career in Japan. Um, and then Yoo Chun, perhaps um, always the most troubled of the members, would sadly drift into drugs, scandal, and some very serious criminal charges that mean he likely will not be appearing on Korean or Japanese television again, ever. But at least of this recording, he seems to have made some life changes and... He looks like he's doing well, um, or at least he looks about a billion times healthier than those awful perp walk photos from a few years ago that pop up when you Google him. Uh, and it's been over a decade. Oh, and Jae Jung still looks fantastic. The man is uh, is beautiful. And Jun Soo, he's, he's still very cute. So yeah, it's been over a decade since the fight ended, but it's only now that Junsu and Jaejung have been able to make tentative steps back into mainstream Korean entertainment. Um, and yeah, so Jaejung was able to sing on Korean television in 2021. Very exciting. And Junsu performed as part of the big Weavers Festival in early 2023, uh, the festival hosted by HYBE. So, you know, kudos to them for that. Um, TVXQ as a duo were never able to recapture the toppermost of the poppermost heights that the five-member unit had. But, you know, they've continued to do very well, especially in Japan. Because um, I was there for their 15th anniversary CD release, I think. It was the 15th anniversary. And, yeah, I, I went into Tower Records, saw the big posters, saw the ladies lined up to take pictures. 
Um, and they're still active to this day, just putting out banger after banger. So TVXQ today are a completely different group in look and sound to the old TVXQ, but it, it, you know, that doesn't, it doesn't really matter anymore. Um, yeah, the silhouette of the two men standing tall has become iconic in its own right. And for all intents and purposes, they've become the TVXQ and you know, they, they earned it. TVXQ as a duo, they're fantastic. They're different from the five member TVXQ, but they're still great. Uh, Chungmin is now a husband and father and you know, well, <laughs> he's still enjoying the soul nightlife and, uh, evening, uh, runs allegedly. And he just put out a great mini album. So the question of why Jaejung, Yuchun, and Jinsu left SM Entertainment while Yuno and Chungmin stayed is one that fans still debate to this day. After spending months looking into what happened in those fateful years of 2009 to 2012, my personal opinion is that it's complicated. And I'm inclined to believe that at one point all five had been united in their frustration with SM Entertainment but somewhere, somehow, in that pressure cooker work environment, something just changed. And there likely were interpersonal resentments and I'm sure differences in social class did not help things. Creepy was the straw that broke the camel's back, but I'm pretty sure if it hadn't been Creepy, it would have been something else. For the three who left, the chance at more freedom and more money was worth the risk. For the two who stayed, the guaranteed income, even if it was not as much money as they could be making. The association with a company like SM, you know, the CEO had just been recognized by the president of Korea. It was just a safer bet. It's also extremely likely that SM Entertainment was at least partly responsible for the intra-group conflict. You know, after all, they had done it before with HOT, Xinhua offering promises to some members, but not to others. And at the end of the day, what we can say is that JYJ tried the impossible. To have a pop career without any industry support, relying completely on the fans. And they came tantalizingly close. Their struggle against the newly unified K-pop industry likely served as a warning to idols looking in frustration at their paychecks. But in launching their crusade, they also exposed some of the seedier parts of the industry practice to sunlight, hopefully benefiting those idols who came after them. And certainly the new contracts, the seven-year contracts, did benefit the idols who came after them. And as Junsu says, they'd earned a hundred times more after leaving SM than they did when they were part of TVXQ. And that is not nothing, especially if you have a large family with a history of not so great business sense to support. And I have to admit, I developed an unexpected fondness for OT5 TVXQ and their members as I dug around in the history. Uh, I'm inclined to believe that if there is a villain of this story, it's SM Entertainment, with AVEX as something of a two-faced sidekick. I have a hard time blaming Jae Jung, Jinso, and Yoo Chun for wanting more money. 
nor do I blame Yuno and Chungmin for not wanting any part of the drama that was unleashed by this lawsuit. The three who left suffered a great deal in order to achieve some measure of freedom, but it also couldn't have been easy for the two who stayed. And they were all so young at the time, and under an enormous amount of pressure, with both parents and industry executives whispering in their ears. Neither side would have had an easy time of it. And, you know, I really felt for, really for all five members. So one of the songs from JYJ's Korean album, Their Rooms, which was released in January 2011 and billed as a, quote, music essay. So one of the songs from that album was Park Yoo-chun's self-written rap, Untitled Part One, which was essentially his version of what had happened. And it is a story that every boy band fan will know. And this translation is from Hello K-Pop. Hearing that we had finally struggled overseas and brought in results so unimaginably astronomical, I walked into the office with a spring in my step to receive my pay. Our team members were looking at each other with excited gazes. We complimented each other on how hard we had worked, but the statement of accounts we received said we were at, uh, that we were at a deficit. I thought I had seen the figures wrong, so I checked again. Everything was listed under expenses. Damn it, how could that money have gone towards paying expenses? What kind of expenses were there to make that much money vanish? At the very bottom of the story, once you dig through the legal fights and the accusations of betrayal, is really the, the central story of the boy band. New Edition, NSYNC, Backstreet Boys, what kind of expenses were there to make that much money vanish? So, yeah, I hope you enjoyed this trip down memory lane as much as I enjoyed researching and writing it. And I hope you will continue to support the active members of JYJ, as well as TVXQ as a duo. Uh, all four men are excellent performers and are worth checking out if you're unfamiliar with them. Um, but I think... I think we should close with a song from Happier Times, and this, uh, well, I have to say, this became one of my favorite OT5 tracks as I as I went through uh, the years in this project. So this is Sky, performed live at the Budokan in 2007, and thank you for thank you for listening along. Thank you for for coming on this journey with me and. Yeah, I hope um, I hope this helped clear things up, or at least uh, help you think about things in a different way. Especially since it seems like um, SM Entertainment and and K-pop industry, idol industry contracts are still a big source of uh, contention. So, yeah. <laughs>
Herzen wie Sekali.